Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Carl Skupchin, author of the book Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Charles, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Very, very glad to be with you. Well, we're very glad to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I, uh, I was born and raised in Wisconsin. Uh, and um, then moved to to Charlottesville, Virginia, when I was a teenager. Went to high school there. Uh, ended up going to to Harvard as a as an undergrad, where I studied uh, East Asian languages, history, and politics, and learned Chinese. And um, and then ended up in the United Kingdom at Oxford as a as a grad student. And when I was there, I, I more or less drifted into mainstream international relations. Uh, I then came back to the United States and had my first teaching job at Princeton. And then I left uh, Princeton to join the Clinton administration as uh, um, a member of Clinton's National Security Council and served there for a couple of years. And, and that's where I got the bug to try to bridge the gap between the worlds of public policy and the worlds of, of scholarship. Uh, at Princeton, I, I really was more uh, focused on scholarship, writing and scholarly journals, didn't really try to address uh, issues of, of public policy. And so after I left the National Security Council, I ended up having dual affiliations, one foot in academia at Georgetown University, one foot in public policy at the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a think tank that is based in both Washington and in New York. Uh, and I've I've kept those two positions over the last uh, couple of decades. And I did have a second bite at the apple in terms of public service, serving from 2014 to 2017 as special assistant to the president for national security affairs back at the National Security Council under President Obama. Uh, I left that post on inauguration day uh, when President Trump took office. And uh, since that time have been back as a professor at Georgetown and as a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and spent most uh, of the last uh, several years since I left public service writing the book that we're talking about today. I 
find that that, uh, that description of yourself, we have a foot in both the worlds of, of academia and public policy to be represented in your book, because while it is a book about the history of isolationism, it's also, as you explain at the beginning of the book and then also discuss at the end, a book talking about American foreign policy today and the future of American foreign policy. What led you to write a book about isolationism? Well, I, I think if you look at, at my past books, they all more or less do the same thing, Mark, and that is to use scholarship and history and comparative politics to address real world problems. Uh, and, and it's that target that led me to write this book. And it really goes back to the to the 1990s, the first time I served at the National Security Council, because it was then that I began to wonder whether the robust appetite for international engagement that I grew up with, you know, when I went to to grad school during the 1980s, so I was I was raised and trained during the Cold War. I started teaching before the Cold War was over, and then the Berlin Wall comes down and the Cold War ends, and then in the 1990s, you know, coverage of foreign affairs in the newspapers and and radio and TV fell off a cliff. I watched President Clinton struggle to decide whether to get involved in the Balkans, despite the bloodshed there. And so that's when I really began to wonder whether the country was going to turn inward in the aftermath of, uh, of the Cold War. And then we got 9-11, and suddenly everybody's riveted again by international politics. We're focused on the Middle East like a laser. We're suddenly in a bunch of different wars. But those wars don't go so well, and there is a backlash against them. And it was then, uh, after the the Iraq War, Afghanistan don't go well, that that I decided to embark uh, on a book about isolationism. So I started to read about American history before Pearl Harbor, before World War II, to get a sense of what the debates were like. And I have to say that, you know, my head exploded because I had not read a lot of American diplomatic history from the 1700s, 1800s, 19, uh, early 1900s. And the country was very different than the one that I grew up in. It was a country that was fiercely isolationist. It was unilateralist. It pursued a foreign policy that had racist overtones. It was protectionist. In other words, it, very, it had very little resemblance to American grand strategy of the Cold War era. And, it, and when I realized that, that's when I began to say, you know what, I think I'm going to write a book about this. I think Americans and others need to know more about the United States pre-Pearl Harbor. I think that the, the issue of isolationism, the calling to stay at home and tend one's own garden, that runs in the American DNA. And so that's why I felt it was important to go back and, and write this book and try to reflect on what history tells us about the current moment that we're living in. Now, you use these terms, uh, internationalism and isolationism, and not just that, but you also uh, subdivide uh, internationalism into uh, various uh, you know, approaches of it. But I, I was wondering if you could start us off perhaps by talking about what exactly is isolationism, because that's what phrase that is some that uh, has for a long period of time had a, a very loaded connotation, a very negative one, like appeasement or, or, or something along those lines. When you're talking about isolationism, uh, to what are, are you generally referring? And and, and uh, in what way is, is it a, a concept that sort of transcends any particular moment 
and is, as you pointed out, part of that American DNA. Well, you're right to say that that isolationism has a has a, a bad connotation. It's a dirty word. And that's because of what happened in the 1930s when the United States essentially stuck its head in the sand when Nazism, fascism and militarism were sweeping both Europe and Asia. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to say, hey, not so fast. Uh, isolationism as a strategic doctrine, the idea of not overreaching, of not entangling ourselves in the affairs of other nations, maybe that there is some strategic wisdom there. And for me, isolationism really is, is a, a very narrow concept. It's a strategic doctrine, which says that the United States should not take on enduring strategic commitments outside the homeland. The homeland, i.e., is, is uh, North America. And there are a lot of historians and uh, political scientists and others who say, oh, wait a minute, the United States never was isolationist. It was it was always a trading nation. It was culturally engaged. And uh, and for me, yes, the U.S. was a trading nation from the beginning. Yes, we had diplomats that were in Europe and in other parts of the world. They were well-read. They traveled. Missionaries were spreading out from the United States in the 19th century. Yes, we also spread across the continent in a very aggressive way, pushing Native Americans out of the way, grabbing land from Mexico, trying to grab hold of Canada. And we we got to the to the Pacific coast over the course of the 19th century. But we then stopped and we said, we're not going any further. And there were many debates in the 19th century about moving into the Caribbean, Cuba, Haiti, Santo Domingo, the Virgin Islands, moving into Central America, moving into the Pacific, taking over Hawaii. And every time someone came forward and proposed expansion beyond North America, either the president or Congress swatted down the idea. And so it's that concept that we enjoy the natural security of North America from coast to coast, but do not extend our strategic reach beyond coast to coast. That is how I define isolationism, and that's how it plays out in the book. So you, you have this idea of isolationism, which you describe as being in the, in the American DNA. Um, and, and while it's always been there, it had a stronger presence prior to the 20th century. Could, could you perhaps explain how isolationism became so dominant in American foreign policy, what were the uh, you know, elements at play in terms of asserting it early on? And how does it play out uh, in the early uh, decades of American history? Well, I, I call in the book 1789 to 1898 the era of isolationism, because that's the period in which first the founders and then those that followed in the footsteps of the founders laid out the notion of the United States as a redoubt in North America, but a country that would not venture abroad. And the story really begins quite early in 1776 when the Congress, Continental Congress, drafts what was called the Model Treaty. And the Model Treaty basically said the United States should have economic ties around the world, 
but no alliances, no strategic commitments. And then we form an alliance with the French in 1778, very reluctantly, but we did so because we had our backs up against the wall. We were losing the Revolutionary War. And the French came over and uh, they helped us win. Had it not been for French intervention, the United States may well have lost the Revolutionary War. And then there's a critical uh, turning point, a critical episode in 1793 when France and Britain go to war again. The existing alliance between the United States and France is still on the books. The French call up and say to George Washington, uh, President Washington, we're at war with our common enemy. How many troops and ships are you going to send across the Atlantic? Well, what does Washington do? He issues the proclamation of neutrality in which he says, basically, we don't have a dog in this fight. Good night and good luck. And so essentially, George Washington reneged on the alliance with France and the U.S. did not have another alliance, a formal military alliance with any other country until after World War II. And then in 1796, soon after he reneged on the alliance, George Washington gives his farewell address in which he basically says our great rule of conduct abroad is commercial connections with everyone, political connections with no one. And that sets the stage for the ensuing generations. And the United States was, was by no means isolated. It was surrounded by the British, the Spanish, and the French early on, and Native Americans. But over the course of the first few decades, and really the War of 1812 was a turning point, the United States succeeded in easing the European empires out of North America and eventually out of the Western Hemisphere, and it pushed westward, pushing Native Americans and others out of the way. And then over the course of the 19th century, as the isolationist vision came into focus, I would say it had a lock on American politics because it came in different flavors. There was the geographic version, which was we have big oceans on the east and west and small, relatively weaker neighbors to the north and south. Let's invest in and bank on that security. There was a version that was about liberty at home and abroad, that we don't want to play the game of great power politics because then we will have a large federal government and a large army and that will threaten liberty at home. Nor do we want alliances abroad because we want to retain our freedom of decision. We want to preserve American sovereignty. There was the exceptionalist narrative, which said the United States will play by the rules of enlightenment. We will not be an empire. We will not seek conquest. We will be a light unto the nations, a city on the hill. And then finally, I would say there were two other versions of isolationism. One was a racist version which basically said that the United States was exceptional because it was populated mainly by Anglo-Saxon whites. We do not want to venture abroad and either rule over or take into the union non-whites. And finally, there was a pacifist strain of isolationism, which was particularly strong in New England in religious communities. I would say it was probably the weakest strain of isolationism, even though it did become much stronger 
in the 1890s after the Spanish-American War. But I think what is what is unique is you had these different versions of isolationism in different parts of the country, and it meant that the idea of avoiding strategic commitments abroad appealed to different parties, different parts of the country, different regions, and that's one of the reasons it had a virtual lock on American foreign policy until the end of the 19th century. One of the things you do in the book that I like is you also describe how the concept of isolationism played out as America's position in the world changed, that it wasn't a static for 100 years, the United States had a, a, a fixed position in the world and isolationism reigned supreme because you're describing how isolationism changed with the times, how you go from uh, the uh, early 19th century, the United States is having to, uh, you know, position itself vis-a-vis -vis the, the wars that are taking place in Europe. You uh, reach the uh, point of the uh, 20th, uh, the, the, you know, later on as the United States is growing as an economic power and it's beginning to, its place in the world is beginning to uh, put different pressures on isolationist policy to the point where you, you do start to see people asking that question, you know, should the United States adopt a different approach? And of course, all this culminates in 1898. So, how does that changing position of the United States in, uh, economically, uh, 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 culturally, socially in the world uh, uh, affect the, the dynamics of isolationism over the course of the 19th century? Well, one of the critiques that you hear from historians is that, well, you know, the U.S. really wasn't isolationist. It just didn't go abroad because it couldn't. It was too weak. Uh, and you're right to point out that that argument doesn't carry water because isolationism continued to have a pull on American politics well after the United States emerged as a major power. Yes, you could argue that in the early days, in the early decades, in the early part of the 19th century, the United States did not have an option to engage in great power politics because it was too weak. It didn't have a big army. It didn't have a big navy. It couldn't go across to Europe and 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 go toe to toe with the British or the Spanish or others. And that's all true. But the problem with that argument is that the United States rose quite rapidly in the 19th century and particularly after the Civil War. Massive amount of economic growth, railways, canals, industry taking off. So by the by the late 19th century, you're talking about a country that is a, a major player, a global power in economic terms. Nonetheless, until you get to the very end of the 19th century, one administration after another rejected the idea of turning America's economic might into military might. Uh, and, you know, to the U.S. Uh, in the in the 1880s and into the early 1990s, even though it was a major industrial power, had a navy that I think ranked around 17th in the world. Uh, and so we had the ability to go abroad and we chose not to. Now, that starts to change in the 1890s. And I'm someone who was enough of a of a realist, enough of a believer in power politics to, um, to maintain that America's career abroad was waiting to happen. That is to say, I can't think of any power in history that became a major player economically 
that did not eventually become a major player geopolitically. And the light bulb goes on in the 1890s in the United States when uh, Alfred Mahan, who was an was an admirable admiral, Teddy Roosevelt and others decide to start pushing for a big navy, for what's called a blue water navy, a navy that has battleships capable of ranging into other theaters. And when that proposal first came forward, Congress went berserk because until that time, the United States only had smaller vessels that were needed to protect commerce and protect America's coasts. So when the Navy first comes forward and says, we want to build battleships, Congress says, for what? What do you need them for? That's only going to get us into trouble. And so there's a period with a big heated debate in Congress, and eventually the decision is taken to build three battleships and a few more over the course of the 1890s. And a lot of this debate was, was I think, affected by a historian named Frederick Jackson Turner, who popularized the notion of the closing of the American frontier, that America had been such a success politically and economically because it was always expanding. There was always a new challenge, a new frontier to conquer. But now that the U.S. had made it to the Pacific coast, what do we do? How are we going to maintain our dynamism? That narrative caught on in the 1890s. It helped build support for the battleship fleet. And critically, it helped build support for the decision of President McKinley in 1898 to take on the Spanish, to kick them out of Cuba, where an insurgency was, ra was raging that the, the Spanish cruelly oppressed. And that's really when the United States began to range abroad. It not only kicked Spain out of Cuba, but it effectively established military occupation of Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, the Philippines, Guam, Samoa, and the Wake Islands. So you can see that this was waiting to happen. This was not just a small operation in Cuba. It turned into a, an operation in the Caribbean and in in the Pacific. So that's really when we see the United States abandon isolationism and begin to see itself as a power with global ambition. Now, the United States takes that turn in 1898, but as you then explain, it doesn't just suddenly embrace internationalism. It, it, you describe the, in, in this part of the book a, a, a very fascinating, uh, you know, uh, you know, contrast between the different forms of internationalism that are now being considered. So could you explain to us the, the difference between those two forms of internationalism that emerged during this period? And how do they engage with and how does in, in turn internet, uh, the uh, isolationist uh, con uh, ideal, shall we say, uh, you know, respond to it? Well, you know, McKinley tells Congress and, and the American people that we are going abroad in the service of our ideals. He calls the annexation of Hawaii manifest destiny. He justifies the occupation of the Philippines where a terrible insurgency breaks out as an effort to civilianize and Christianize a foreign population. And so essentially, the narrative is that the United States is taking its experiment on the road because it has completed it at home. And all of a sudden, the U.S. has 
overseas colonies and is involved in a terrible, terribly bloody repression in the Philippines where 4,000 American soldiers die and hundreds of thousands of Filipinos. And so suddenly Americans are looking in the mirror and they're saying, what happened to us? We were told we were going abroad essentially to spread the American experiment. And what's happened? We've turned into an empire just like everyone else. And so an anti-imperialist movement is born in 1898 and you see the US backpedal. It doesn't give up the territories that it took but it essentially comes back to a foreign policy that's much more focused on commercial expansion than geopolitical expansion. And I call this the defeat of realist internationalism. That is the effort to justify expansion abroad on realist grounds, power politics, conquest, territory, ruling over other people. It didn't work. The American people rejected it. And essentially by the time you get through the uh, into the early part of the of the 1900s, you have a president, Mr. Taft, who returns to what came to be called dollar diplomacy. We don't want to rule over other people. We don't want to send our battleships abroad. We want to make money. Then Woodrow Wilson comes along and he basically looks back at the train wreck that stemmed from the Spanish-American War. And he says, you know what, I'm going to try a different kind of of internationalism, an idealist internationalism that is in keeping with America's finer traditions of democracy and human rights and self-determination. So World War I breaks out in 1914, and Wilson's initial response is to say, we want nothing to do with this. He really does kind of call forth the 19th century mantra of isolationism to say, this is far away, we need to remain an enlightened readout of democracy. This is not our problem. And he, he basically keeps distance. The Germans then begin to sink American vessels in early 1917 because the U.S. is a neutral power. It's trading with some of Germany's enemies, the British in particular. And after Americans are dying because of US, uh, German submarines, he goes to war against Germany but he justifies it in completely idealist terms. He disavows any realist ambition. He says, we're going to Europe to save democracy. We're going to Europe to turn the world into a democratic and peaceful island. And then after the end of the war, and the US is on the winning side, he creates with the help of the British and the French, the League of Nations which is a standing body to preserve peace and marshal coalitions against any aggressors that might emerge. Well, guess what? The idealist version of internationalism didn't work either. The American people turned against World War I. The Senate three times in a row voted down the League of Nations. And Wilson still doesn't give up. He says, OK, I want the election of 1920 to be a referendum on my brand of idealist internationalism in the League of Nations. And he sees James Cox, the Democratic nominee, as the, the, the person who will take forward this agenda. Well, the Republican nominee, Senator Warren Harding, he says, make my day. I stand <laughs> for the policies of George Washington. I am against alliances and foreign entanglement. What happens? 
Hardin wins that election in one of the most lopsided results in American history. And that begins the interwar retreat and the return of the stubborn isolationism that the United States embraced in the 20s and 30s. So you have this reversion, but you now, as you've explained, have these strands of of uh, internationalism that are out there. You you have advocates. You still have people that are you know calling for engagement with League of Nations. You still have people that are you know talking about you know joining the World Court, and that remains an issue into the nineteen you know into the nineteen thirties. And so you have this this these ideas out there as you see Europe going towards war. And then that brings us to that moment that you describe in 1941 and the emergence of liberal internationalism. And what I thought was especially interesting was how you describe it in some ways as a synthesis of both realist internationalism and idealist internationalism. How does that go about? Is it entirely a product of events or are there uh, other uh, forces at play during this period to bring about the creation of liberal internationalism? Well, you know, if it, the 1930s really was a period in which isolationism took the country down a very dark path. You know, I'm someone who believes that isolationism served the country well in the 19th century. It allowed the U.S. to rise in unmolested fashion. The founders were wise to say, let's steer clear of troubles abroad and others will, will steer clear of us. When you get to the 1930s, it's a very different story. And given what was happening in Europe and, and Asia, and the story really does begin quite early, right? The, the Nazis come to power in 1933. The Japanese are conquering Manchuria, North China, and then the rest of China over the course of the 1930s. So it's not as if everything was peachy quiet. Uh, nonetheless, the worse things get abroad, the more the United States distances itself from foreign entanglement. And, you know, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt is remembered as this great wartime leader, but he was very much part of the isolationist mainstream right up until the end of 1939. And because of what happened in 1917, that the U.S. got dragged into war because it was trading with belligerents, you see the U.S. pass an increasingly tightening array of neutrality laws in the 1930s that essentially forbid any trade with belligerents as a way of making sure the U.S. didn't get dragged into the war. Then in 39, Roosevelt starts getting cold feet and he says, you know what, if Britain falls to the Nazis, the Nazis could, be some, could become so powerful that they're going to come across the Atlantic and, and start predation in the Western Hemisphere. So he says it's time to start allowing the, not, uh, the, the British and others to purchase American weaponry. And that's the beginning of his shift to, to begin serious military support to those fighting fascism. That also, however, leads to the formation of the America First Committee, which was a very powerful, influential group of Americans attempting to stand in the way of Roosevelt because they believe that the United States should stick strictly to hemispheric isolation and do nothing that could, uh, that could drag it into the war. So in 1940 and 1941, Roosevelt is battling the America First Committee and the isolationists every step of the way. He increases support 
to those fighting Jap Japanese and, and German aggression and Italian aggression, but he stays out of the war. And in fact, he justifies giving assistance to allies by saying, this will keep us out of the war. We help, need to help others fight themselves so that we don't have to go and fight the war and lose our own blood and treasure. Well, it didn't work in the sense that the Japanese eventually attack Pearl Harbor, the US enters World War II, and the lights effectively go out on isolationism. And what Roosevelt then does is he melds the realist tradition from 1898 with the idealist tradition from Woodrow Wilson. And he basically says the United States will pursue its interests. Roosevelt was a realist, but it will do so in partnership with like-minded nations, i.e. borrowing from Woodrow Wilson. And it is that marrying of power and partnership of realism and idealism that gives birth to liberal internationalism and to the bipartisan moderate center in which internationalist Republicans and internationalist Democrats came together really for the first time since the 19th century to support American engagement abroad through multilateral institutions and the forward presence of American force. So that explains how liberal internationalism emerged. How did it remain so dominant over the following 60, 70 years? What, what were the, the forces at play? To what degree was it a consequence of events? And to what degree was it a consequence of the success of the idea? There's no question that, that external threat mattered. Because if you go back to the 1940s and the end of World War II, the U.S. was still fundamentally internationalist. The vote on the United Nations was very uh, overwhelming, very different than the vote on the League of Nations in 1919 and 1920. But then in the second half of the 1940s, you begin to see a clamoring to bring the troops back. You begin to see the isolationists be, uh, try to get more traction. And that fight continues into 52, 53, 54, particularly after the Korean War breaks out and uh, President Truman decides to deploy three divisions to Europe because he fears that what happened in the Korean Peninsula, that is, that a communist attack could happen in Europe. And the isolationists sort of come out and they try to pass constitutional amendments. They try to keep the United States from getting more deeply involved abroad. But because of the rise of the communist threat, the Soviet Union, what, the division of Europe, Korean War, they basically lose. And by 30, 53, 54, the isolationists are more or less pushed to the margins of American politics right through the end of the Cold War. And so I think that consensus was sustained by external threat and the anti-communist uh, zeal in the United States. I think it was maintained by a growing economy in which Democrats, Republicans alike, saw international engagement as a way of sustaining economic growth. So some of the key socioeconomic and regional cleavages that we'd seen earlier in American history disappeared. There was a great movement of peoples because of industrialization. And so Democrats from the South moved to the North, Republicans from the North moved out to the Sun Belt, 
And there was really a moderate center in American politics that, uh, that hadn't existed before. So the conditions were ripe for liberal internationalism to survive and thrive. It got weaker after the Vietnam War, but the, the voices that responded to the Vietnam War were more calling for retrenchment, getting allies to do more, not returning to hemispheric isolationism. And it's important to keep in mind that the Cold War was still going on, and that helped create, uh, I would say, a, a floor beneath which most, uh, most people were not willing to go when it came to bringing, bringing the troops home after Vietnam. I like the way you presented in the book, you know, isolationism doesn't go away. And as you've mentioned, it crops up. And yet the isolationist label tends to be used a lot more by the liberal internationalists that you described as a political cudgel that they, you know, whenever people start talking about a, a reframing or reconsideration, they pull it out. They may, maybe they don't overtly say, remember Pearl Harbor, but they, in a sense, isolationist, that's when isolationism becomes that bad word that that it can be used by liberal internationalists to uh, you know to override any sort of concerns or, or, or doubts about their policies. That's exactly right. I mean, it really did become a political cudgel that people used to go after their enemies. Uh, there really weren't prominent isolations. I mean, there were a few people out there, uh, Patrick Buchanan. Uh, Ron Paul, but but they really got very little political traction. Uh, and so basically what would happen is anytime somebody disagreed with someone else on foreign policy, they'd call them an isolationist. Uh, and and, and in, in some respects, that continues to this day, although I do think that that our debate is 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 leavening and is it is getting more balanced particularly in response to the so-called forever wars in the Middle East. But right, really right through the, the Obama administration, I think it's safe to say that, uh, that isolationism remained a, a, a dirty word and that it, it, wasn't, it wasn't really until we get into the, to the Trump era that, that the debate about American foreign policy comes back to to the more sort of richer, varied debate that existed before 41. 41 really was a turning point. I would say 41 to, to the end of the Obama administration was, was an era. And, and we're now in, a, in a, a new situation, which in many respects has been started by, by President Trump and his not so unintended return to the America first mantra of 1940. So we're do we then go from here? And this takes us to the part of your book where you're not talking exclusively or predominantly about the history, but you're talking about where we, how we go forward. Because isolationism, as you've you know described it, is you know not what it you know the the cudgel that it's been you know you're not using it as a cudgel. You're using it in in a more as I interpreted a nuanced way. I mean, so what is you know is isolationism going to be? the province of the Pappy Cannons and the Donald Trumps? Or are you talking about isolationism assuming a, a different form than we have traditionally remembered it as being? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not an isolationist and I don't advocate for isolationism. 
but I do see the isolationist impulse coming back. And it's, I think, important to grasp the parallels that exist today with earlier periods of American history, the 1930s in particular. You know, we're living through an economic crisis of a sort that we haven't seen since the 30s. The pandemic is hitting the economy in a similar way to the Great Depression. Americans feel that the country has overreached in the Middle East, just as they felt that it had overreached in the Spanish-American War in World War I. People are worried that engagement abroad has come at the expense of liberty and prosperity at home. You hear a lot of talk about the surveillance state. You hear a lot of talk, particularly coming from Democratic progressives, about the bloated military budget, the, the need to spend money at home. Uh, everybody is talking about spending money on schools in Arkansas, not in Afghanistan. Uh, there is a nativism that has returned to American politics, especially in the last four years, very reminiscent of the nativism and anti-immigrant sentiment of the 1930s. So there are, there are strong parallels between politics today and politics of the 1930s. And so one of the things I wanted to say in the book is let's not assume that that isolationist impulse is gone for good. And I would point out that if you look at public opinion polls, if you look at the debate among prominent strategists, things are changing. The Foreign Affairs magazine, which is a sort of voice of the establishment, a couple issues ago, the cover was Come Home America, question mark. Three quarters of the American public now wants out of Afghanistan and Iraq. George Soros, a liberal philanthropist, recently teamed up with Charles Koch, a libertarian conservative philanthropist, to form the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which is basically uh, an effort to get the United States out of foreign commitments. Prominent academics around the country are calling for the United States to return to what they call a strategy of offshore balancing, in which we remove ourselves from a forward presence in Europe and Asia and everywhere else and uh, go back to, to being offshore. You have in Donald Trump, somebody who has resuscitated the unilateralism, the isolationism, the protectionism, the anti-immigrant sentiment of previous eras in American grand strategy. So one of the, the punchlines in the book is Let's realize that the isolationist impulse is part of the United States. Let's draw some positive lessons from it about the importance of strategic restraint, about the, the viability and desirability of strategic retrenchment, but let's not go too far. In other words, let's finally find the middle ground between doing too little, where we were in the 1930s, and doing too much which is where we've been for the last couple of decades. Let's step back from the world, but not step away. So in some ways, it's a, it's a Goldilocks uh, solution to a country that is feeling its way forward after a long period of what I would call too much internationalism, a long period of too little internationalism that came before. 
let's see if we can't now find the middle ground. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, I am mainly, uh, number one, trying to get the message out about the new book. And thank you very much for, for having me on your program. Uh, number two, uh, I'm resting a little bit because it, it was a it was a it was a heavy lift. Number three, I'm re- I, uh, I'm emotionally traumatized by our election uh, and the the continuing political turmoil uh, involved in the in the transition. Uh, number four, I'm writing shorter pieces, some op eds related to the book. But I don't yet have a new, a new book-length topic in mind. Uh, oftentimes, you know, my, my next book follows naturally from the one that I just finished. And so I probably will sit back and ruminate about some of the lessons that I draw from this book on isolationism and, and try to decide whether uh, it, it points me to the next book. So in general, I'm going to I'm going to take a respite, uh, recharge my batteries uh, and then figure out what the next what the next big project is that I that I want to look at. Uh, And finally, I've got I've got three little kids, ages three, five and eight. They're home because of the pandemic. And and, uh, uh, even though we're all going a little bit stir crazy, there is a certain silver lining. I guess it's a blessing in disguise that we're getting as much family time as we are. And so I'm going to use the the respite after the end of the book to spend a lot of time with my wife and children. Well, I'm glad you were able to take some time out of that uh, you know, family time to come speak with us about your book. Uh, Charles Kupchin, uh, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to speak with you uh, about your book, uh, Isolationism. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much for hosting me.